It's really a privilege for me to introduce uh, somebody who is more than a brother, more than a, a colleague, uh, my dear, dear friend, Dr. Tiberius Ratza. Some of you know him. He'll be sharing with us this morning. Dr. Ratza uh, has just begun his 14th year at Grace. He's a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew. Um, he has a beautiful family. There you are, right here in the front row, Carmen and Tim and Nick. Tim is a, a sophomore at Grace, pre-med golfer. Nick's a sophomore at Warsaw High School. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate so much about Dr. Ratzo, we laugh a lot together, but we are both exceedingly serious about the Word of God. And you will sense that as you hear a beautiful story of his life and then as he shares out of the Word of God. So let's give a rousing mission point welcome to Dr. Tiberius Ratzo. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Gill. Dr. Gill was my best boss ever. I've worked in many places, but he really was my great, greatest boss I've ever had, and I, I miss him. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 5. A couple of months ago, Kondo asked me to, to speak about my life story, and my life story is... Uh, very much intertwined with Mark chapter 5, and I'll explain uh, why. <clears throat> I uh, was born and I grew up in the communist country of Romania. Uh, this picture that you see, uh, that you'll see on your screen is from 1976. I was six years old. That's, uh, that's my parents, with, uh, and that's me with my two older brothers. So I'm the little one in the picture, the the one in the middle with the funky haircut. I think that was a $5 haircut right there. Um, our cousin Cammie is in the picture. My mom is holding her. She was just visiting for uh, the time, so uh, she wanted to be in the picture, and there uh, she is. She's actually now, she lives in Flagstaff, Arizona. But uh, I grew up in a communist country, uh, I would go to school, and they told me there is no God. So I was very torn. What do I believe? Do I believe what they tell me in school, or do I believe what I'm learning at home? I lived in a very beautiful hometown. You see it here. This is uh, my hometown. This is a picture taken from uh, the hills. It's actually a city surrounded by seven hills. It's... Um, um, can you see? Is that, is that up? Can, I, can we have the, the city, the hometown? Uh, it was an industrial town of about 70,000 people. There we go. Very beautiful, though. Um, my, uh, my dad worked in the factory. They were making diesel engines. Actually, diesel engines, they would, they would sell throughout uh, Europe. My mom stayed at home with us until... Uh, all of us were in, uh, were in school, and then after that, she got a job working at a textile factory. But even though I would go to school and learn that, uh, and I was told there is no God, both my parents and my grandparents were believers. So we grew up in this church, built in 1928. It was a little Baptist church, built in 1928, um, and probably you could fit maybe 300 people in the, 
in the seats, but every Sunday we probably had 500 people in church. So actually you had all, everybody was, uh, the people who couldn't uh, sit, they were standing in the aisles, they were st- standing in the, in the balcony. So I was really torn. Again, what do I believe? Do I believe what I'm being taught in school? Or do I believe what my parents, my grandparents, uh, our pastors are teaching us that there is a God? Not only did I go to church, but I even sang in the kids' choir. Here's a picture of the kids' choir. Right here. I'm the one in the circle in the middle. That's about 1980, so I'm about 10 years old. And the one circled with yellow, that's my wife. She said she had a crush on me. <laughs> Can you blame her? By the way, it's my wife's, it's my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, honey. It's also Kyle Brenneman's birthday today, so make sure you say happy birthday to Kyle. But I sang in the kids' choir. I was I was a good kid, I thought. I mean, seriously, my 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 people from the church would tell my my mom, hey, little Tibbs, he's a pretty good kid. And uh, and they were right, in a sense. 1984 comes along, and my dad decides to defect to the United States. See, my, my dad had enough of communist, Marxist, Marxist propaganda. He, he didn't want it anymore, and he said, I'm going to leave Romania, and I'm going to try to make it to the United States. So he paid a fisherman three months' wages to make it across the border, into former Yugoslavia. Uh, Once he made it there, the United Nations had a refugee camp. Once you made it there, you were safe. So he made it there. Then they sent him to Italy, and eventually they sent him. He arrived in the United States in November of 1984. He did the paperwork for us, and we arrived uh, in 1986. So this is the picture of me and my two older brothers with my dad on the day we arrived um, in the United States. On that night, when my dad paid that fisherman three months' wages to take him across the border, four other people left with my dad. So in one night, that fisherman made one year's wages. It was a good business, wasn't it? But people wanted to leave communism and Marxism and all that uh, philosophy, there was an atheistic philosophy that started with there is no God. We were never physically persecuted. My family and I were never fa- uh, physically persecuted. But there was a psychological persecution. I remember in ninth grade, this is after I became a believer, uh, my homeroom teacher came to our class and said, um, who here is a repenter? See, a repenter was a mocking title, name, given by the communists for people who were evangelical Christians. To distinguish us from the Greek Orthodox was the national religion. So who here is a repenter? Because they had to send the list to the communist party. And it was me and a girl from the Pentecostal church that we raised our hands and said, we are repenters. So they took our name down and passed it on, probably to make sure that we don't join the Union of Young Communists. 
uh, whatever he was, whatever to that, what happened to the list, I don't know. Uh, but we, we were never physically persecuted. But uh, even kids that wanted to make fun of us would call us repenters, and that was their way of mocking us. But I want to go back to 1983, the summer of 1983. This is the house of my grandparents in a small village, southwestern part of Romania, where we kids would spend most of our summers. Um, it was not just uh, me and my brothers, but my, our cousins would be there. So the whole summer we would be there try, learning how to play soccer and uh, taking the cow to pasture. That was our job. <laughs> we had one job. Take the cow to pasture in the evening. So we, would hate it. we hated it because we were playing soccer. And my grandma and my grandpa would call us, Hey guys, come home. You got to take the cow to pasture. So every evening we would take the cow to pasture. Thankfully, the cow knew how to get home. That was good. So in the morning, I didn't have to go get the cow from pasture. The cow somehow had an internal GPS, knew how to get home. But I grew up in there, and it was, it was, it was wonderful. Uh, until the summer of 1983, that middle window that you see there, that's the room we were in on an evening of July 1983 when there was a big thunderstorm one evening. Uh, rain, thunder, lightning. And my dad had a dream that night. And he dreamed that I was a little devil, a little demon with horns and everything. And he proceeded to share that at the breakfast table. And again, my cousins were there, my uncle, my aunt, everybody was there, and everybody laughed. Everybody laughed. Oh, little tips, little devil. Yeah, we can see it. We can see it. Everybody laughed except me. I remember walking through the fields that day asking myself, why would my dad dream such a dream? And I concluded that my dad dreamed such a dream because it was true. You see, at home and at church, I was a saint. Sang in the choir, did all the things uh, that I was supposed to do, everything my mom, my dad said I would obey. I was a very compliant kid. But with my friends and at school, I would do and say what my friends would say and do. So I learned how to lead this double life. I was a chameleon. What the Bible calls in 1 Corinthians is that even the, the devil knows how to become an angel of light. So I kind of mastered that. Even though I was 13, I mastered it. So I concluded that that was true. My, what my dad dreamed was true. Fast forward to October 2nd, 1983. An evangelist comes to our home church and opens the Bible to Mark chapter 5. That's where, that's where our story starts. A maniac, a miracle, and a mission. In Mark chapter 5, this evangelist was coming from another town, opens his Bible, and starts preaching about the healing of the demon-possessed man. And I'm thinking, wow, I better listen to this. I don't believe I was demon-possessed, but we have to understand that you don't have to be demon-possessed to buy into Satan's lies. Satan, who is the father of lies, that's what he does. You don't have to be a demon-possessed to be like this man here in the story. In Mark chapter 5, we read, 
they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do, you want me to, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demon begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those standing the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. First thing we see about this man, he, this maniac, is that he lives in isolation. Look in verses 2 and 3. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. You might say, Tiberius, you don't have to worry about us. We are not demon-possessed. And I know that. But here, again, I want to say again, you don't have to be demon-possessed to be lonely. You don't have to be demon-possessed to live in isolation. People, this basically, this picture that Mark paints for us is the picture of a person without Jesus Christ. People without Jesus Christ live in their own isolation. They are lonely. Without Christ, people are lonely. Sure, they go to parties, and they have a lot of friends. But deep down inside, you know, they are lonely. Because there's a void in our lives that only Jesus Christ can fill. And without Him, you'll always feel lonely. Chuck Swindoll observed, and I quote, Loneliness plays no favorites, ignores all rules of courtesy, knows neither border nor barrier, yields no mercy, refuses all bargains and holds the clock in utter cont contempt. It cannot be bribed. It will not be left behind. Tears fall from our eyes as groans fall from our lips. But loneliness, that uninvited guest of the soul, arrives at dusk and stays for dinner. The man lived in isolation, but he was also uncontrollable. 
Look in verses 3 and 4. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I don't know about you, but this picture is not a picture of a man. It's a picture of a, more of a picture of a beast, right? Actually, the word subdue there in verse 4 is used one other time in the, in the letter of James. It's talking about taming a wild beast. See, this is the condition of a person without Jesus Christ. They are uncontrollable because they are controlled by Satan. Again, you don't have to be demon-possessed to buy into Satan's lies and to listen and to do what he says. Without Jesus, my dear brothers and sisters, people are in bondage of sin. Without Christ, people are lonely. They're isolated. They're uncontrollable and they're self-destructing. Look in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. See, this guy that came to our church to preach about the demon-possessed man used to be a psychiatrist. And he left his psychiatry practice to come and become an evangelist. And he became an evangelist and went and told the whole Romania about how people without Christ would actually even cut themselves. Again, you don't have to be demon-possessed to do that. The idea is this, that without Jesus Christ, people do self-destructive things. It might not be a physical cutting, but you might self-destruct yourself with alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography. All these things, self, you self-destruct yourself with these. And this is the picture of a person without Christ. Lonely, uncontrollable, self-destructing. Because again, there's that void that we have that only God can fill. And if God doesn't fill it, you have to fill it with someone, something else. Maybe some of you tried alcohol to numb the pain and to fill the void. Listen to a member of, a former member of Alcoholics Anonymous who wrote, We drank for happiness and became unhappy. And you might say, Tiberius, that's not my problem. Alcohol is not my problem. Well, you fill in the plank with whatever you're using to self-destruct. We drank for happiness and became unhappy. We drank for joy and became miserable. We, we drank for sociability and became argumentative. We drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. We drank for friendship and made enemies. We drank for sleep and awakened without rest. We drank for strength and felt weak. We drank medicinally and acquired health problems. We drank for relaxation and got the shakes. We drank for bravery and became afraid. We drank for confidence and became doubtful. We drank to make conversation easier and slurred our speech. We drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. We drank to forget and we were forever haunted. We drank for freedom and became slaves. We drank to erase problems and saw them multiply. We drank to cope with life and invited death. My dear brothers and sisters, this is the condition of a person without Jesus Christ. They're isolated, they're uncontrollable, they're self-destructive. 
And if the story would end here, it would be a tragic story. But it doesn't end here. There's a maniac, but there's also a miracle. Verse 8, Jesus says, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Starting in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want me? What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Cut out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out of and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This was the original Bay of Pigs. Some of you took history, American history, okay? But a legion, what was a legion? A legion, a Roman legion in the army, in the Roman army was at least five to 6,000 people. So we know that this man was possessed by at least 2,000 of these demons because there are 2,000 pigs, right? So at least 2,000 of these demons are torturing this man. See, the fact that this is in Mark 5 is not by accident. Because at the end of Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm. But now Jesus encounters another storm, but this storm is not outside of people. This storm is inside of a person. So the question is, can Jesus steal the storm inside of people? We know that Jesus can steal the storm outside. He just did it at the end of Mark chapter 4. But can Jesus steal the storm inside of us? And the answer is, yes. He does this miracle. Jesus completely blew blew away the devil. Jesus has the power over sin and darkness. See, some people say, well, my sins are too grave for Jesus to forgive. Think about this guy. How much this guy probably did in his lifetime, more than any of us put together, and yet Jesus healed him. And Jesus can forgive you whatever you did. There is no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. As someone said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. He simply loves you. And there's a miracle here. Then you might say, this guy is healed and everybody is happy, right? Wrong. Look at the reaction. There are two reactions. Some people want Jesus to leave. Look in verses 14 through 17. Those standings, the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had sent told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You see, these are the people, my dear brothers and sisters, who care, who care more about their pig-growing, bacon-making sausage and business. Then they care about the soul of a person. Is that us? Do we care more about our business than about the eternity of people? These guys did. They wanted Jesus to leave. John Oxman put this in a, in a poetry format. 
He put the reaction in the following poem. He says, Rabbi, be gone. Their powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we whine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him well, since we have lost our swine? Look at the stark contrast. Some people want Jesus to leave, but the healed man wants to follow Jesus. Look in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed began to go with him. And he wanted to go with him. But Jesus doesn't allow him. Instead, he gives him a mission. So we saw the maniac, the miracle, and now the mission. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Why home? Why go home? Why not, why not go on a mission trip? Go home. Well, Calvin Miller, I think, captured this very well. When he writes, and I quote, It was not what the man wanted to hear. He wanted a more exotic assignment, a Christian adventure. Still, he did obey. Why did he dread those words, go home and tell? Because home was where they knew him well. Naturally, he did not want to go back where everyone knew him. He wanted to go and make converts among those who didn't know him because there the baggage of his past would not be a problem. Besides, witnessing to those we haven't met carries the intrigue of newness. In the process of meeting someone for the first time, there is some possibility they will hear us. But going home holds no such intrigue. There we must shout our witness across the high walls of harsh familiarity. Genuine change is more easily recognized by those inside the family than those outside. The man went home. The change in him was so profound among those who had known him that his influence was incredible. Jesus' assignment to the man is his assignment to us. Jesus is sending us home too. Go home where the changes Christ has produced in your life will be everywhere evident. Go home to those who are skeptical of what you have or you have become that they know what you used to be. But if you really changed, you will, you will impact them in ways no stranger ever could. Did the demons know who Jesus was? Yeah. But Jesus doesn't want the demons to share him. He wants us to share him. Those of us who have been healed, those of us who have been changed, we have the mission to go home and tell. The fourth century, the third century African theologian Athanasius wrote, Jesus put a bridle in the mouths of the demons that cried after him. For although what they said was true, they did, and they did not lie, when they said, you are the Holy One of God, he did not wish that the truth should proceed from an unclean mouth, and especially from such as those who under pretense might mingle with, with their own malicious devices. Who better to share about Jesus than people who have been healed by Jesus? Today, Jesus passes by the tombs you've visited, but he's willing to heal you, to save you from your sin, to liberate you from your bondage.
Let me return to my story. Back in October 1983, after that preacher preached about the healing of the demon-possessed man, and he shared how people were cutting themselves and were harming themselves, he said, Jesus can heal you. If Jesus can heal this demon-possessed man, he can heal you too. But this guy was a pushy evangelist. I was sitting somewhere in the balcony in the corner, and he said, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I raised my hand. And if, but this guy was a pushy evangelist, not just an evangelist, pushy. So, hey, if you raise your hand, come in front of the church. I had to come down all the way in front of the church. It was me and about 10 other people. And here's what I remember about that night. I was crying uncontrollably. I could not stop crying. And I remember after I finished crying, feeling what the Bible calls the peace that passes all understanding. I knew that something happened. Jesus saved me. Jesus healed me. And he, he, made, he made this miracle. And now he gave me this mission to go and tell a lost world that Jesus can still save. That Jesus can still heal. So how do we apply the truth? First of all, if Jesus Christ is now your Lord and Savior, I implore you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The question is not if Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. The question is, is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your Savior? If you are still isolated and uncontrollable and in bondage, this Jesus wants to save you. This Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to free you. And He's the only one who can do it. Trade your loneliness for his fellowship and trade your bondage for his freedom. First John 3.8 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. That's what he came to do. And he is all-powerful. And Jesus is still in the business of changing lives. He can change you too. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our job now is to tell others what the Lord has done for us. In the Gospel of Mark, this healed demon-possessed man becomes the first evangelist. A Gentile going where? To the Gentiles. A, Gentile, a saved Gentile is sent to the Gentiles because Jesus didn't just come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wanted all the families of the earth to be blessed through Him. So we have to do that. We have to, as I think the grace kids nowadays call it, send it, right? What we got to do? Send it. That's what you got to do. You got to go tell people what Jesus... You don't have to, to preach a, a sermon. You don't have to, to do a three-point thing. All you have to do is say, I was blind, but now I see. I used, to be a, I used to be in bondage to sin, but now Jesus has freed me. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. Tell what others what the Lord has done for you. I did that the first time back in, the 19th, in, my, in ninth grade when I had to raise my hand to say, I'm a repenter. I told my colleagues in the class that I gave my life to Christ. That's the first time I did it. And ever since then, I tell a lost world about what Jesus has done 
for me. A couple of years ago, I was flying to Romania uh, with a friend of mine. He wanted to open a school, and I remember waking up that morning when we were supposed to fly out, and um, in the quietness of my heart, I remember Jesus saying, Tibbs, what do you want me to do for you? And I remember, without blinking, I said, Lord, when I get to the airport, please have them bump me from economy to first class. That's what I said. That's what I prayed. And uh, the next second, I felt a rebuke in my spirit. Uh, Jesus saying, Tibbs, I'm giving you a blank check, and you ask for peanuts. So I felt um, rebuked in my spirit, and I pray, Lord, before I, the plane takes off today, give me an opportunity to share Jesus with someone. I get to the airport. Do you know that God has a sense of humor? You know that? My friend got bumped to first class. <laughs> Not making that up. So here I'm left behind. No pun intended. Sitting next to Melvin from West Virginia. So Melvin from West Virginia. I'm here. He's Melvin. He's a lady. Melvin, it was clear he had too much to drink. Our plane was delayed, so him and his friends that were flying somewhere for work had a little bit too much to drink. So Melvin does one of these and starts bothering the lady next to him. The lady next to him does one of these. Hey, talk to the hand. So Melvin does one of these. And I can tell you that before the plane took off, I told Melvin that Jesus still saves, that Jesus can still heal, and Jesus can still change people. And I remember, remember he was pretty much drunk, but I remember him looking at me with eyes wide open and said, Jesus can change me too? And I said, yes, he can. I wish I can tell you that Melvin gave his life to Christ, but that was not the case. I don't know whatever happened to Melvin. But my job was not to convince Melvin. My job was to tell Melvin that Jesus can still save, Jesus can still heal, and Jesus still wants, and he not just loves him, but wants him to change. We don't have to preach sermons. All we have to do is tell people that Jesus can still has the power to heal and still has the power to save. As Dr. Gill and the band come to lead, let me close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for sinners such as us. Forgive us for the times when we were quiet and we asked for peanuts instead of wanting people to to be saved. Forgive us when times when we cared more about our business, we cared more about the bottom line, that the lives are changed and people are saved for eternity. I pray they will give us grace to go out and tell a lost world of people that Jesus can still heal, Jesus can still save. I pray that if someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. In Christ's name I pray.
Amen.